0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy. I hope you're staying healthy. And I hope that you're staying safe. A little bit later on, we'll meet Dylan Playfair. Now, he's someone who grew up with a father who had been an NHL player and a coach. He grew up playing hockey. Now he's an actor, and guess what? He plays hockey on screen in not one, but two series. He's on Letterkenny, plays Riley there, and he's one of the stars of the new Disney Plus reboot of Mighty Ducks. We'll get to him in just a little while. Also, one of the greatest fighters in mixed martial arts history is going to stop by, Georges Saint-Pierre. He is now an actor as well. and We're going to talk about how fighting in the octagon prepared him for Hollywood and a career as an actor. First up, though, I want to tell you about a film called The Father. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Supporting Actress for Olivia Colman. It's directed by Florian Zeller, who also co-wrote the script, and who joins us today via Zoom from his home in Paris. I saw The Father at the most recent Toronto International Film Festival, and it was one of my favorites. It's a family drama about taking care of a loved one with dementia that manipulates reality to tell the story from two very different points of view. There's the caretakers and the patient. Anthony Hopkins plays Anthony, an 80-year-old former engineer who lives in a really beautiful London apartment filled with art and filled with music. What's missing is a carer, someone to make sure that he eats and takes his pills and is comfortable as dementia makes his behavior increasingly more unpredictable. By times charming, other times angry, confused and controlling, and always convinced that someone has stolen his prized wristwatch, he's scared away a series of caretakers. His daughter Anne, played by Olivia Colman, moved in to run the house, but she's relocating to Paris and needs to find someone to look after her father. This is such a beautifully acted movie. It can be a tough movie to watch, particularly if dementia has touched your lives in some way. And we'll talk about that with Florian Zeller in just a couple of minutes. First let's hear a clip from the father.
1: Dad, I'd
2: like you to meet Laura. How do oh, you do, sir? I say you're gorgeous.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I must say he's charming. Yeah, not always.
2: Laura has come around to help you. I don't need her or anyone else. I can manage very well on my own.
3: Everything all right? Who are you? I see, it's me, Paul. Who? I live here. What is this nonsense?
2: Anne? It's
1: me.
3: Ah, there's yours. is. Your father seemed a bit confused.
1: Something wrong? Where's Anne? Sorry? Bam, where is he? I'm
0: here. That was a clip from The Father playing in theaters and now on VOD. I began by congratulating Florian Zeller, director of The Father, on the six Academy Awards his film received.
4: It's a pure joy. Sincerely, it's a pure joy. And I'm really grateful uh, to the Academy Mm -hmm. because it means a lot. And I would say maybe especially in this year, because it's probably not the best year. To get your first movie released, uh, and you know, in the meantime, when we, you receive like these recognitions, it's a uh, yeah, it's like a, a wonderful gift. So I take the joy because <laughs> we have to we have to work on the joy.
0: I know. Yeah, take the little bits of joy where you can find them. Exactly. Now, you didn't do any research, from what I understand, when you wrote the play and then the script for this. Uh, why approach this difficult material in that way?
4: Uh, I think that I didn't need to do the research. Um, I guess when I started to write The Father, I was trying to go through my own personal story. I have been raised by my grandmother, and she was like my mother, actually. And she was some, someone very important in my life. And, and she started to suffer from dementia when I was 15, living with her. So I knew a bit what it was to go through this painful process. And, and, and you know, to find yourself in a position where where you are important, you, you love someone, but you understand that in a way, love is not enough. Mm-hmm. But it was not about trying to tell my own story, uh, because I was aware that, you know, everyone, unfortunately, is related to this issue, meaning that everyone has a grandmother, yeah. or everyone has a father, everyone has or will have to deal with this painful dilemma, which is what do you do with the people you love when they are starting to suffer from dementia? And so it was more about sharing those emotions. And, and to tell you the truth, when, when, when I wrote the play, I didn't know if, if the audience would be open to such a, an emotional experience. And I was surprised and, and really moved to discover that the response of the audience was really strong, meaning that people were waiting for us after every performance in France and in many countries, not to, t- not to tell congratulations congratulation but just to tell their own story or to share their own story. And I realized that there was something cathartic here, you know, just to remember that we are not individuals uh, like that, but we are just part of something larger or bigger than ourselves. And there is a fraternity here, a painful fraternity, but I think there is a consolation and a real one and a beautiful one to remember that we are all together, uh, like, you know, fraternity again, and I think art is done for that, especially movies. And this is when I really made the decision to make a movie from the father, uh, based on the father. But also because I had the intuition that thanks to the cinema, this experience could be even more immersive and, and subjective and powerful because the idea was to put the audience in a unique position as if they were going through a labyrinth, as if they were in the main character's head,
0: you know, in a way. You're listening to my interview with Florian Zeller, director of the Oscar-nominated film, The Father. What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry. Everything will sort
1: itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me.
2: I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up.
1: What are you talking about, Dad?
2: I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat.
0: Well, I have never seen dementia portrayed this way on screen. I haven't seen the play, but I have seen the film. And I have never seen the story told from the point of view of the person with dementia. And so as you're watching the movie and this doesn't give anything away um, as a viewer, I started to know the kitchen cabinets are different. Oh, the chair. And then different people are playing his daughter. And it just, all of a sudden you realize it clicks in that you are seeing the movie from a perspective that I have never seen before from the perspective of the person who has the disease. And I found that fascinating and brave. And I would imagine Uh, that must have presented its own challenges in terms of trying to realize that vision on the screen and really hoping that people would get it.
4: Yeah, but it it was the whole point. I didn't want the father to be just a story. Mm -hmm. I wanted the father to be like an experience. The experience of what it could mean to lose everything, including your own bearings as a viewer, but to be in an active position, as you said, trying to question the cabinet, trying to question the scene and and who is this character and and to try to play with all the pieces of that puzzle to find the correct combination, to make it work, to make it meaningful. Because as a viewer, I really like when I'm in this active position, not just sitting and watching a story already told, but to try to use my brain and my heart to make something of it. And It was really exciting for us to find a way visually to explore this labyrinth. And for example, the set was an element, uh, you mentioned it, Mm -hmm. but the set was an element very useful for us because I I shot, we shot the studio, the film in a studio, because as a filmmaker in a studio, you can do whatever you want. You know, you can remove a wall, you can change the proportions, change the colors. And I wanted to use that uh, as in a cinematic way. You know, it was not about providing a background for the characters. It was using the set to tell the story and to, 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 make, the, uh, to make the audience experience uh, the emotions. And, and so you, we are in this apartment, as you said. This is Anthony's apartment. There is no doubt about it. And step by step, always in the background, you have some small changes or small metamorphoses And you can't tell exactly what happened, but you feel that something had happened. It's not exactly the same. So at the same time, you recognize the space. And at the same time, you're not quite sure of where you are anymore. And so you are in that labyrinth and, and you are going through that disorientation I wanted you to experience.
0: And the film does that so effectively. Uh, in that answer, you mentioned the character Anthony, who was played by Anthony Hopkins in the film. As you were writing uh, the, the play, uh, did you have him in mind at that moment? I've read where he was an inspiration of some sort for you.
4: No, he was uh, an inspiration when I wrote the script, Uh, but the play was already written and I started to dream about making a film and about making that film. And when I started dreaming about that film, the one and only face that came to my mind was Anthony's. And that's the reason why I I did that film in English, because as you can hear, I'm French (laughs) (laughs) and it was not an obvious decision to do it in English, but... I had this powerful intuition that it was for him. And to me, he's the greatest living actor by far. And, but also I thought that to see him, you know, he's always this man, always in control. You know, we know him through all his part. He's always in control of the situations and to see that man precisely losing the control, I thought could be something disturbing and challenging. And painful also, because, you know, we know him, we feel as if he was someone from our family, you know, there is something familiar with someone that you have seen for years and years. And to see that man that that you believe, you know, becoming someone else, step by step. To me, it was mirroring what we could experience is in our own life. You know, when Mm -hmm. you see your own grandmother becoming someone else, someone you do not
0: recognize. There's a scene where he breaks down near the end. Uh, Tell me about shooting that scene, because I know, uh, from what I understand, that you had conversations with Anthony Hopkins about age, about memory, about mortality. And uh, all these things must have been swirling around in his head as as he's performing this, this absolutely heartbreaking scene near the end of the film. Tell me a little bit about shooting that, if you could.
4: Yes, it's the last scene of the film was the real destination of the film. In a way, we were aware that if that scene was not as powerful as uh, it should have been, the whole film would have been pointless in a way. So the stakes uh, couldn't be higher for us, uh, at least, uh, shooting that moment. And it was, it was not easy because the idea was not for Anthony to create a character and to fake an old man with a disease, what I wanted him to try to do was just to be himself, just to be in front of the camera, and to use his own fears, his own personality, his own emotions, to to make it as truthful as possible. You know, what we were always saying is no acting required, (laughs) (laughs) which was not absolutely true. But it was a way to say, no, we are not trying to just... to to tell a story but just to to use our own emotions and to share them with you and and so at that point he had to he had to to reconnect with his
0: own feeling of mortality and it was not easy and he told me it, it, it was almost painful you're listening to my interview with florian zeller director of the father now on vod
4: what happened is that he saw some glasses on sets and he told me afterwards what happened to him and those glasses made him think of his father's glasses. And so he traveled through time Mm -hmm. and he remembered his father and he remembered that his mother was singing a lullaby to him at that period of time. And I saw that lullaby who broke him in front of me and I saw him traveling 70 years back in his childhood and he really became this child crying for help crying for his mother to come and save him. And it was so, I can't tell you, it was so simple, profound. And it was my emotion, it was our emotion, you know? And I said, cut, and the whole set was crying. And I came to him and he took me in my arm and we cried together in our arms, sorry to say that, but it was because it was what he has achieved here to me is is unique.
0: Well, it's an extraordinary performance uh, in a career of extraordinary performances. But as I was thinking about this film and thinking about his other roles, there is often uh, an icy veneer to some of his most famous roles. And I think that in this, that is stripped away. And I think that's what is so connecting to people. As you talked about it, we feel like we knew him one way. And then we see him this way and it, and it is, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, Final question for you. What lessons did you learn as a novelist and then as a playwright that you brought to directing for film?
4: I think that my experience from theater is the relationship with the audience and I It was not about making a film for myself. It was really something to share with the audience. And I always have the audience perspective in my my head. And it's really done, again, to share, to share, and uh, to share.
0: That was Florian Zeller. Look for his name on Academy Award Night, and look for The Father. You can find it. It's still playing in theatres, but probably easier these days to find it on VOD. Now let's meet Dylan Playfair. If you're a fan of Letterkenny, you know his character, the hockey-playing Riley. And if you're a fan of the Mighty Ducks, you get to have more Mighty Ducks in your life. Dylan Playfair is one of the stars of the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, which is now playing on Disney+. Plus. He comes from a hockey background, so that's where we started the interview. It's sort of
5: that old adage of uh, do what you know and then uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, so... I know I'm not working. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. It, you know, it's it's cool. It's it's been an incredible experience to be able to go from from hockey into acting, and then apply so much of what I learned through through hockey in, into acting. And um, you know, my dad was one of the biggest supporters of, of that decision to go from from playing the game into, into acting because I think he was very aware of of uh, the fact that. You know, he made a a big jump and he made a big leap going from his small town in Fort St. James, B.C. to go pursue professional hockey. And he's always said to me and both my brothers, you know, that 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 saying has been told over and over again, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And, you know, you'll be able to put in those long hours and those hard moments if you're pursuing something that you really care about. And uh, it was funny. My plan B was acting. My plan A was to play in the NHL. My plan B was acting. So, but I came from a family where we were supported. They were like, listen, pursue it. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing worse than, than the feeling of regret. So get after it, go try it. And uh, if it doesn't work, then you can always, you know, come back and work in the farmer.
0: <laughs> and, well, and now you're doing both, which is the kind of incredible thing. You're acting and you get to play lots of hockey. So, I mean, this is a win-win for you, I imagine.
5: Yeah, it feels that way very much. So, yeah, I'm, uh, every what, what day do you, I wake up and pinch myself a little bit.
0: <laughs> what do you take away from playing hockey, uh, and bring that into your world as an actor?
5: You know, the there's so much. Um, I guess re- rejection is the word, but it's not the the feeling I apply to the nose you get because you get a lot of nose and in acting. You do a lot of auditions um and compared to the amount of jobs you book, I mean a, a good ratio is 5%, 10% if you're if you're really talented. So, um but you experience those sort of micro wins and losses during a
0: game in a, in a hockey season and a hockey career. You're listening to my interview with Mighty Ducks game changer star Dylan Playfair. So the ability to go through adversity, I think was
5: huge in my in my hockey playing career that I applied directly into into film and, and and tv you know like there's not many professions where you're, you're expected to you're expected to fail over and over again on your on your career journey whereas i think hockey um if, if you're not making mistakes products not being made you're not scoring goals you're not winning games you're not taking risks so so the idea of, of failure not being a failure the idea of failing forward and, and constantly. You know, being okay and, and improving yourself and being told no, but not having it sort of keep you down. Uh, that certainly applied to to hockey and that's what I really carried over into um into acting. And you know, playing a role on a team. That's what that's what acting is, is finding your place on the team and, and doing what, what you've been asked to do for the for the greater good of the project.
0: How realistic are the Mighty Ducks hockey scenes to real life? You've done both, I imagine it's got to be different because you're starting and stopping and shooting uh in a much different way do you how how different is the feeling of playing yeah, hockey for film know,
5: i joke about when i play riley on letter am I'm, I'm so much better of a hockey player than i was in real life because the the <laughs> goaltenders are are rehearsing how to let my my shots go in properly and make it look realistic you know um that being said we've got a lot of really really talented hockey coordinators on uh, on the mighty ducks and on letter kenny so um a lot of the, uh, the background are talented hockey players, so that flow of the game is, is pretty accurate. But then there, there are certain plays like the Flying V, which may not be the most appropriate gameplay maneuver to, to pull out of your back pocket. But, you know, it, it's, it's worked on occasion, and uh, I would be remiss if it didn't make an appearance in, in this
0: series. What was it like growing up with the original Mighty Ducks and now you're part of it? That's got to feel pretty cool
5: yeah it was, it was incredible i mean when i told my brothers i was i was going to be on the mighty ducks they were both really really excited because we did watch mighty ducks one two and three on repeat and the, the vhs we actually did burn out the second one we had to go get <laughs> a second copy of the, of the vhs tape
0: we watched it so much that was my interview with dylan playfair find him on disney plus in the new series the mighty ducks game changers it's a lot of fun Marvel fans already know that Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a new series on Disney Plus that's about a mismatched duo who team up for a global adventure. Lots of action, lots of fun. Joining me today is one of the show's co-stars, a man described as the top mixed martial arts welterweight of all time. In this interview, Georges St-Pierre tells me about why he never liked fighting, that was a surprise to me, and what it was like to mistakenly punch the star of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Anthony Mackie, in the face during one of their action scenes. Here's Georges St-Pierre. You say that every time you stepped into the octagon in your MMA career, you were acting. Tell me what that means, and then tell me whatever lessons you learned from your former career that you're bringing forward into your acting career.
6: Yeah, I never liked to fight. I never enjoyed it one second. And people ask me, why did you fight them? Well, I was just very good at it. And I did it because I love the science of fighting. I love the training. I love the, you know, I made a lot of money and I love the freedom of being a professional athlete. But in order to keep that, I needed to perform. And the day that I was fighting, it was the worst day of my life. I never enjoyed it. One second. But I I guess I like winning more than I, than I hate losing. Because the idea of not knowing if I will be badly hurt or humiliated, knocked out, or winning the big, big, big fight, it's unbearable for me. It's very stressful. So acting it's a li- very similar than uh, than fighting in a way that every day I was every time I was walking to the octagon to fight I was acting I was extremely nervous uncomfortable and terrified but I I played it like I was confident excited to be there and, and, and to not give my opponent to to not to not give my opponent a, a, an, an edge on the mental game and there's a lot of similarities. When you get ready for a fight, you, you do a lot of different scenarios. You repeat a lot of different scenarios that might hap- might happen in a fight. And when you fight, you find out quick enough that your opponent is never the same as you thought it he he would be. He's always different. And then acting is the same thing. You can re- rehearse a scene so many times, but when you get on set, the background is different. The the, the act the reaction of the actor that you were expected is different. So you need to be like Bruce Lee says, be like water, my friend. The best actor and the best fighter are the one that can adapt the best, I believe.
0: You're listening to my interview with Georges St-Pierre of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, now on Disney+. Plus. What was it like uh, then working with Anthony Mackie? Uh, you have wild fight scenes with him, and you're a trained fighter. He's a trained uh, actor who does stunts, but there's a difference there. So, uh, tell me a little bit about just making sure that nobody ends up hurt.
6: Yeah, when I when I, uh, I work with Anthony Mackie, uh, Anthony Mackie first is an incredible actor, and for me to be able to to be on set with him, I, I'm someone that that I'm always trying to learn by observing the best people in the game, and I'm and I try to observe him how he how he does things, and he's incredible. He's great, great, great actor. I was able to pick up certain things that he did. Because sometimes I was staying behind when he was playing some scene. I was looking at the prompter to look how he does. And I and, and I learned some I learned a lot by working with him. And he's an incredible charismatic person. He makes everybody laugh on set. Mm-hmm. And when you fight for the camera, it's different than when you fight for real. When you fight for real, you, you want to make everything small. But for the camera, you want to make it big. You want to almost telegraph, but you can't do that in fighting because the opponent will see it coming. Yeah. But it looks good for the camera. Okay. And when and at one point, one time, I rehearsed a scene with Anthony Mackie, and we we spent hours. It was it was a you know a long long day. And you know when you make a scene, it's like a flow. You know, you expect your opponent, your 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 partner to move as you you do things. You know, it's like a connection that you have, and it's a flow. Yeah. And um, we, I have a, a little uh, uh, story about it. That at one point I was working with Anthony McKee and Anthony must be very hard because he has to remember all the lines, all the the the, the choreography, yeah. and plus he was wearing a, a very like like the the suit that he's wearing is very hot. Mm-hmm. And I was working and I, and I fight choreography. And at one point, I I threw a punch, and he was like supposed to duck, but. It, it, I, I was not able to pull it back on time, and, and I and I cut him on like my my arm. I'm trying to make it look big, and I cut right. I cut the top of his head with on my elbows. <laughs> but let me tell you something, Anthony Anthony, Anthony McKee is truly a really tough guy. I don't know. I think he's made of steel because he's prob- probably the only human being I hit in my life that I got more damage than him. My arm because I, I think I cut I cut his head on the nerve part yeah. of my elbow and my, my my hand was numb for a few minutes. I, I after we were joking about it, I said, Man, I said you're made you're really made of steel. You're truly a, a a real superhero. It's unbelievable.
0: For someone who says he doesn't like to fight, he sure has some wild fight scenes in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That was my interview with George Saint Pierre former MMA champion, currently one of the stars of the Disney Plus show. Now let's change gears just a little bit. Let's hear from stand-up comedian Debra D. Giovanni, Second City alumnus Daryl Hines, and Just for Laughs co-founder Andy Nolman. We put them together to discuss what makes us laugh. Let's start with Lucille Ball's influence in her own time and beyond. Debra, is she still an influence on comedians, or is that really generational?
1: Oh, I want to. Oh gosh, I hope she is. I really hope she is. That it's that would make me feel old and heartbroken if, if especially (laughs) the females, like especially if uh, the women comedians don't know who she is. That's that's like you have to know. You just have to know. So I'm 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 praying to the comedy gods that people still revere (laughs) Lucille
3: Ball. (laughs) Who knows (laughs) what the kids like nowadays? But they really should. The TikTok and the whatever, the hell. exactly. Is, Lu- is Lucio Ball on TikTok?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but uh, uh, Vivian Vance is. i, I know Yeah, that for Vivian a fact. Vance. She was the genius on that show. Andy, if you had to name another comic with a similar kind of influence, who would that be? Or is it just too fractured a media landscape now?
2: I think these days it's a little fractured because what is a breakthrough comedian? To me, it was never really about the laugh, but it's about maybe the wince or the shudder. Because to me, a breakthrough comedian does something intellectually and socially uh, uncomfortable. That's what they make the audience feel before the laugh comes. So using that as a parameter, I'd say that perhaps Hannah Gadsby is uh, the person right now who is a breakthrough in in terms of uh, being able to get a message across uh, with a bit
0: of laughter. But th- that that's my standpoint at this stage. You're listening to the Comedy Panel, Deborah D. Giovanni, Daryl Hines, and Andy Nolman. Well, Daryl, there are always new ways for comedians to reach audiences. What platform is most important for a comedian right now, and why?
3: Uh... Oh my gosh, man! Come into me with this one. Uh, (laughs) I I think, as I said before, uh, TikTok is is a big one. I mean, it's short little snippets, and it's it's a good way to get like a a quick laugh out. Uh, Instagram, of course, and 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 Twitter, Uh, and and YouTube. I think a, a lot of people are sharing on all the social medias, but I think TikTok is like the big. Right now, the big uh, medium that all the kids are up to. But again, man, I'm
0: I'm an old man. Why, why are you asking me these questions? Deborah, from Uncle Zach to the flight attendant on WestJet, a lot of people think they're funny. But what does it take to be truly funny?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. That's the thing. Everyone does think they're funny, and I'm very sorry to tell you. You're not. Um, it, 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 here's the thing. It, it, it's more than like, there. I would definitely say to someone like, because a lot of times uh, people do ask you know how do I how do I start in comedy and honestly the, my answer is always you know if you make your friends laugh on a regular basis mm-hmm. The, the, the seed is there, but then it's it's more than that. It's like you can't just be funny at the you know at, in the lunchroom. Like you, there has to be funny in all venues. Do you know what I mean? You have to be able to make strangers laugh, and not just strangers. Strangers that want to hate you. That's that's what it is. So it's not it's not just like you know you're a hit at the wedding. That's that's a start. Um, that's I think where it it, it's, it, it begins. Like that's where you start to grow your funny. But then it has to be. It really does have to be. Um, but like it has to be for strangers. So it's got to be on a different... you got to go to different venues, different platforms. And once you can make, you know, some people laugh on every platform, you are close to being a comedian.
3: <laughs> and then do that a million yeah. times, and then you're a comedian.
0: <laughs> and, Daryl, is that your experience with this? Yeah, totally.
3: Uh, uh, you know, I started pretty standard the way a lot of, you know, smartasses start. Mm-hmm. You crack jokes at school, and you make your friends laugh. But then... There is, like Deborah said, that threshold where you got to start uh, going out and performing and uh, performing to different audiences and sort of, in a weird kind of sociopathic way, enjoy uh, winning over a hostile audience, (laughs) you know?
0: Well, Andy, at at Just for Laughs, you must have seen a lot of that. People that would do really, really well in a small club environment, or maybe the galas were their thing, but they couldn't translate to the other kind of venues that you had. Do you have any, and you don't have to mention names, but do you have any experience with that?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, what... Every stand-up comedian's dream was, at the time when I was doing this, was not to be on that stage. That stage was, please get me off here. Let <laughs> me use this as a trampoline to something else, most right. notably a television show or a film. But now, with technology, the, ra- the, the, what's, what's the, the ramp going from zero to 100 can happen in you know, a, a matter of months mm-hmm. or, or weeks sometimes. You, know, you can reach millions of people. All you need is that right... Break that right tipping point, and suddenly you have audience of millions around the world. So you know, right now the technology is in people's, the comedian's hands, and the the audience and uh, the 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 fate is in the comedian's hands. Whereas before, I think they had to rely on people like us just for laughs, and like people who are television producers. But right now, uh, the comedian, the performer, can be his, her, or their own producer, Mm. director, entrepreneur.
0: Well, Deb, do you think that it's dangerous to look to the past for influences in comedy where new things are the thing that keeps material relevant? We've been talking about Lucille Ball on the rest of this show. Is, it, is there a danger of looking back to her and thinking, well, that worked, it can work now? Or do you always have to be looking at the next thing?
1: You know what? I think it's a combination of the two, to be mm. honest. I think that you need to always know where comedy comes from, um, like what. Andy was just saying about you know the platforms now, and it's true. And how com- how I want to say comedians, but I'm not going to. How like TikTok, you know, influencers—they mm. call themselves comedians, but they don't—they don't tell jokes. You know what I mean? And they're still—I mean, seriously—they <laughs> they do funny things. I mean, I watch TikTok and I laugh. I do. There's a lot of really brilliant funny stuff, but comedian at its base is still getting up and going punchline you know set up punchline and laugh and that's what it so if you can't do that there will be a you it will stop at some point in terms of comedy and i see it you know i live in los angeles and you see a lot of the, the, the online people come to clubs and think that it's oh, this is, I'm just going to, and then they bomb and they don't, and they don't understand why. Um, so I think that I need, you need to have a nice combination because you also cannot, you also cannot be a person that says, I'm not going to do this and, you know, I'm not, go-. you have to, you have to embrace, like when, when the quarantine started and everyone started doing Zoom shows, mm. half of my friends were like, I'll never do wow. one of those six months later. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is doing, can I be booked on your Zoom show? You have to, you have to, or you get left behind, honestly.
0: You're listening to the Comedy Panel. Deborah D. Giovanni, Daryl Hines, and Andy Nolman. Daryl, do you think that TikTok has made comedy so accessible that uh, it it has cut into the professional aspect of performing comedy? So you have people that can shoot a video in their home and get a million views on it. Has it... Made work as a comedic actor, a professional comedic actor, uh, more challenging in any way.
3: Uh, well, I don't know. It hasn't made my job mm. any. I'm doing what I I'm I've always done, and it's still working for me. So I'm fine. But uh, but in terms of it, what Deborah touched on, there is is true. It's like these these um, comedians on TikTok. Uh, you know, they put out their lip sync videos and they get laughs, and uh, they think that's because they can get laughs and a million views on TikTok. That'll translate to, uh, you know, success on television or or on in the films or, or or stage. And and no, you you need the fundamentals. The fundamentals are always the fundamentals. So if you don't refine all those tools. Uh, I don't think you have the the tool belt to go out and create uh, outside of the the TikTok bubble.
0: Andy, has there been a show that you've seen at Just for Laughs or elsewhere that of someone that you had never heard of before that you went, oh, that is that is a talent. That is someone who has all those qualities that Dara was just talking about.
2: <coughs> yeah, I, I just got to tell you, Richard, I, I I've been away from Just for Laughs for over... F- <laughs> <laughs> I've been away <laughs> for over five years now, and I left the business because I, I got to be honest—I was really bored with it oh. because of the fact that it was so much the same. It was the same thing over and over, and I was dying for the breakthrough. I was really looking forward to the breakthrough. So I'm going to go counter, Daryl, for a second, and you know, given my age, you know, I should be the one saying yes. Th- those kids today, but no, I really do think that perhaps it's a new medium and a new way uh, to be discovered and it's not just that but it's a new way to entertain mm. and stand-up comedy will always be stand-up comedy and the writing, and I agree the writing, the, the process, the process of going ahead and, and, and working out your material I understand that, but I also understand that a lot of people don't care about that anymore and they don't need that for their entertainment, it's a new generation and there's always been look, you look back at the stand-up comedy I, I, I was a student of it and you saw People like in the early days when George Carlin and people like that came around, uh, Steve Martin, Andy Kaufman, people who really changed the game, and they were looked upon. You know, uh, with, with, with ire. They weren't mm. looked upon, you know, uh, until the audience embraced them. So, right now, I think the same thing's happening technologically. It's a new breed for a new way. And uh, you look at Lily Singh. Lily Singh started as a YouTuber and now she has her own show. So, on NBC, I, I believe it's NBC. So, you know, that's uh, uh, wherever you can find talent and
0: develop for it, it doesn't have to necessarily be that stand up ilk anymore. I'm sorry. That was the comedy panel. Deborah D. Giovanni, Daryl Hines, and Andy Nolman. My thanks to all of them, as well as a big thanks to Florian Zeller for stopping by all the way from Paris to tell us about his movie, The Father, nominated for six Academy Awards. It's a good watch. Check it out on VOD right now. Also, from Disney Plus, Dylan Playfair. You can see him in the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. And while you're at Disney Plus, why not check out Falcon and the White Soldier? You'll get to see the action moves of my other guest, and a big thanks goes to him, George St. Pierre. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.